we know that we are helpless on our own to be able to do anything good for ourselves spiritually in this time. And so we pray that you would come and do that work. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might hear the truth and love the truth and see it. We pray that you would assure us today, all of us who are in Christ, assure us that we are in fact good with you because of him. We pray that you would strengthen and sustain our faith through your word. Come and do that now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, in many ways was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of assurance. Assurance meaning we know, we are assured that we are in right relationship, right standing with God. We have been reconciled to him and now are at peace, have peace with God. That is what it is to be assured. You know that your standing before God is in a good place. So the Reformation in many ways was a recovery of that, that wonderful biblical truth, that we have been justified, that is declared righteous by God, and we have been declared righteous completely through faith in Jesus, apart from any work that we could ever do. We are good with God and he is good with us completely on the basis and on the merit of the work of Christ in our place, again received by faith. And we have peace with God, that peace that I just described, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of God's grace shown to us in Christ. That assurance, that knowing that you know that you know, is the essence of the Christian life and not the pursuit of the Christian life. Peace with God in Christ is sort of like the resting heart rate of the church. Everything in the Christian life, therefore, flows out of this reality. Everything in the Christian life flows out of our union with Christ by faith. It flows out of our justification, the fact that we have been declared righteous, pardoned by God. It flows out of the reality of peace with God. So it's interesting, in light of this, to survey like the broad evangelical church, which we know the evangelical church, by definition, hails from the Reformation. Right? That's what produced evangelical churches, churches of the evangel, of the gospel. But often in evangelical churches in our context, there is an erosion of assurance in order to motivate people toward holiness and in order to motivate people towards participation in, in church life. Going to unsettle you, right? Cause you to question some things in order to motivate you. That's often the MO in many churches that would claim a Reformation heritage. It's interesting. So to be sure, I try to be clear, right? I, don't, I can't nuance everything I say, but I want to be clear. There is time in the church, there, there is a time, there is a place, I should say, when severe language is necessary. There are times in the church's life where even, might we even say threatening language is necessary. Jarring language, right? So I, let me give you four 
sort of categories for that just very quickly as I read the New Testament. The severe language of the apostles is reserved for cases of unrepentant sin where you're sinning and you don't care, right? That's a time for strong language. Two, a denial of the sinfulness of sin, right? You're doing something that the Bible calls sin, but you don't call it sin. No, 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 no. You don't define those terms. That's a time for strong language. Also, if there's something going on in the church that even people outside the church know is wrong, that's a time for strong language, strong warning. And then finally, the apostles use very severe language when it comes to false doctrine, false gospels. Like They're going to lambast that. So those are four broad categories of times when strong language and even warning language and rebuke and strong, jarring words are required in the church. But here's the the but to that, right? There is something seriously wrong with our theology and there is something seriously wrong with our perspective. If we think that we need to constantly threaten and unsettle repentant sinners, let me say that again. There is something very wrong with our theology and with our perspective if we think that we need to perpetually unsettle and threaten repentant sinners who sincerely mean to follow Christ. So when dealing with the saints, repentant sinners who mean to follow Christ sincerely, exhortation and correction and even warning can be done in a way that does not undermine assurance. It can be done in a way that does not undermine peace with God. It can be done in a way that would actually bolster assurance and in a way that would strengthen faith. This is not my idea, okay? This is not new. This is, in fact, the biblical pattern. I would say it's the pattern of 1 John. And so now let's look to the Bible. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, Open them up to the letter of 1 John. We are in the fifth sermon in this series now. Time passes quickly. We will be spending our time today in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We will get the words uh, to those verses up on the screen for you uh, if you don't have a Bible to follow along with. So before we do anything else, I want to read God's word for us, beginning in 1 John chapter 2. And verse 12, this is the word of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I've got a pretty simple 
uh, plan for us today. Two main parts and then kind of a brief conclusion. So part one, point one of the sermon. I'll try to reiterate this a couple of times. John is writing this letter. John is writing because his readers are the real thing, not because he suspects they aren't the real thing. Let me say that again. I know it's a little long. John is writing this letter because his readers are the real thing, genuinely Christians, not because he suspects that they aren't. Remember the context of this letter. False teaching exists in the church to which John is writing. There was a kind of false teaching in particular and a kind of sort of philosophical doctrine that existed that was leading to lawless living, like legitimate, antinomian, against the law kind of living, no law. Doesn't matter what you do in your body. Only thing that matters is the spiritual plane. And so the sins of the flesh are really no consequence whatsoever. But then there were also many people in this church context that were abandoning the faith and were abandoning the church. They were leaving. They were apostates, to use a biblical word, a theological term. So John is not writing to unsettle his readers. That's clear throughout the letter, and it's crystal clear in this passage today. If there's any dispute or any debate, verses 12 through 14 clear it up pretty quickly. There were people that if they had heard this letter read aloud, that should have been unsettled to be clear. There were some people that should have heard this, would have heard this, and should have been unsettled. Who were they? Well, the false teachers, the apostates, right? Those who had bought into this kind of whack, proto-Gnostic thought. They should have been unsettled by this letter. But the people to whom John is writing, the church, should have been and would have been comforted by what John is writing, not unsettled. So let's look together for just a minute at verses 12 through 14. We'll begin with verse 12. Put your eyes there. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So realize like the pattern of John's writing from the beginning of the letter, even up until now. He begins in his introduction by telling everyone, hey, I'm writing to you about Christ. I'm writing to you of Jesus, the word of life, the one who has been from the beginning. We've seen him. We've touched him. We've heard the testimony. I'm writing to you about him. We, if we are his people, are to walk in the light, not in darkness. We live life in the light. We've considered what that means. Part of what that would mean is if we say we have no sin, we're deceived. We are deluded. God's truth, God's word is not in us if we say that we have no sin. If we say that we don't have sin, we make God a liar, even. Then if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says in the beginning of chapter two, I'm writing to you so that you might not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not just our sins only, but the sin of the whole world. Anyone who would ever be saved, he is the satisfaction for them. 
those who know Jesus, immediately after that propitiation language, those who know Jesus will keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but really. We will keep his commandments. Those who know Jesus will love one another. He's been, that's what we considered last week. An exhortation to obey the commands of Christ and to love the brothers and sisters. And then immediately and again, after this exhortation, where does John go? He goes back quickly to assure his readers of the forgiveness that they have in Christ. So he's exhorted them. He's exhorted us. Obey the commands of Christ. Love the brothers and sisters. I'm writing to you, dear ones. That's a term of endearment, little children. I'm writing to you, beloved, because your sins have been forgiven. I'm writing to you because you've been forgiven in Christ for Christ's sake. So when you see that for his namesake, that his, again, seems clear in the context. He's talking about for the sake of Christ, you have been forgiven. You have been pardoned. You have been cleansed. You have been forgiven for Jesus' sake. Well, what does that mean? In part, it would mean that you have been pardoned, cleansed. You've been forgiven for the sake of Christ because of what he has done for you, because of what he has accomplished for you. For Christ's sake, you will be forgiven because he has atoned for your sin. For Christ's sake, you will be forgiven because he has satisfied the wrath of God that your sin deserves. For Christ's sake, you will be forgiven because he paid the penalty that the law requires for everyone who is a lawbreaker. He did that for you. And for his sake, you're forgiven. For Christ's sake, you have been forgiven because he has provided you with his own righteousness. He has fulfilled the law perfectly in every way. And that fulfilling of the law, that perfect life has been counted to you as well. So for his sake, you've been forgiven. All of this forgiveness too, we can think about what it would also mean for the sake of Christ. It's because of what he has done. So it's for his sake that we are forgiven. But it's also ultimately, too, for Christ's sake in that it's for his fame. It's for his glory. It's for his renown. That's a legitimate understanding here as well. It's good for us. Amen. It's awesome. The greatest thing in the world is to be in Christ. But it is not for our glory, ultimately. It is not for our good, ultimately. It is for the fame of Christ in the glory of Jesus. So Christ gets glory through saving his people. He will be praised forever. We just sung this great song, lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem, right? We talked, we sung of how he was in the old Jerusalem carrying a cross and dying for us. And we ended the song by singing, see him seated on the throne. And lift your voices to him. He's in the new Jerusalem now. And we praise him. And we will forever. He will be praised forevermore for what he has done in the salvation of his people. But it's more than that. It's more than just his fame. For Christ's sake would also mean for Christ's joy. Right? For Christ's joy you have been forgiven. Think Hebrews chapter 12, right? For the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him, 
Think Psalm 2. God's son will have an inheritance. He will inherit the nations. The peoples will be his. He will have a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it will bring Christ much joy to be with his bride, the church, forever. So for Christ's sake, we have been forgiven. At the end of history, right, there will come a judgment. The universe, we would understand, is going to be watching this. Like, the ratings will be through the roof, right? Everybody's going to be watching this. And the universe will watch and behold as all men will be judged. And Christ will pronounce over each of those who are in him, your sins have been paid for. He will pronounce that your guilt has been handled. You have been found righteous because I've seen to that. The world will watch that. The universe will behold that. And then the Father, God the Father will affirm that judgment. The whole world will see it. In the case of the lowliest saint, a saint who has hardly anything to show, maybe converted late in life, whatever, not much fruit to show. There is real change, but not a lot of good works to display. Just wasn't a lot of time, maybe. For that lowliest saint, God the Father will be greatly glorified as he holds up the record. And he says, he was real because he trusted my son. And the Father will be glorified and he will be filled with joy to say, child, it is my delight to give you the kingdom because of Christ for his sake. There will be praise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and the lamb to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There will be praise. So John is telling us, dear children, I'm writing to you because you have been forgiven. Not so that you might be. I'm writing to you because you have been forgiven. And you have been forgiven for Christ's sake. These are wonderful words of comfort. He goes on, verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now this term, fathers, it's interesting how John is now going to be talking. He addressed everybody, beloved, dear children. And now he's going to talk to particular groups of people, even though we would understand this is applicable to all of us. But it's just interesting how he's going to talk to fathers. He's going to talk to people that would have been fathers, even mothers, older, maybe more mature. He says, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. You know Jesus. That's why I'm writing to you. Though you haven't seen him, right, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. So I'm writing to you, just like Peter says. In his letter, he goes on. 
I am writing to you young men. We're still here in verse 13. Because you have overcome the evil one. Young men, people, young people in the prime of their lives. So not the older people. Like kind of, yeah, I'm in my, I'm in my 20s. I'm in my 30s. I'm on a winning streak, right? Life's going well. People that are thriving, young men. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. Through Christ and his spirit in you, you have overcome. You are more than conquerors through him who loves you. I'm writing to you, or I write to you, he says, into verse 13, I write to you children. This is a different term. This is actually kids. I write to you young people, like really young people. Because you know the Father. You have fellowship. Remember, our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you, children, because you know God. I write to you, fathers, verse 14. Because you know Him who is from the beginning. Again, I write to you, you know Christ. Just to be crystal clear, that's why I'm writing. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Again, to those who are in the prime of life, you are strong in the Lord. That's why I'm writing to you. God's word abides, it dwells, it lives in you. So I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you because you in Christ have overcome the enemy. So notice this. Notice what John is doing. He assures his readers that they're forgiven. And then he assures them that they know Jesus. He assures them that they know the Father. He assures them that God's word is in them. And he assures them that they have overcome the evil one. They have overcome darkness. So when we read this letter, and John writes of people who don't know God, because he'll mention those people like that, that don't know God. He'll write of people in the letter that don't have God's word in them. He'll write of people in the letter that don't have the truth in them. He'll write of people that have the spirit of antichrist in them. He'll write of people that have been blinded by darkness, people that have been overcome by darkness even. When he describes those people in this letter, it is clear that he is not describing the primary audience of his letter, the church. He is describing other people who are not the real thing. I think that's clear from the context of the letter. I want to make a few more comments still under this first heading. With respect to John's pattern of regularly and consistently pointing his readers to Jesus, he does, right? He doesn't go a paragraph without pointing people back to Christ. So with respect to that premise, that principle that we see in John's letter, just so that you don't think this is only from me. John Callan observes this. We, like John, ought to ever take heed lest the doctrine of faith be smothered. That doctrine which teaches that Christ is the only author of salvation and of all blessings. He goes on. They who pass by the free remission of sins in their teaching and dwell on other things, build without a foundation. John, in the meantime, intimates, that is, John, in the meantime, makes clear, 
And these are the words of Calvin, that nothing is more suitable to stimulate men to fear God than when they are rightly taught what blessing Christ has brought to them. Let me read that again. Nothing is more suitable to stimulate men to fear God than when they are rightly taught what blessing Christ has brought them. This is a biblical pattern. And theologians through church history have observed this. The biblical pattern of pointing people to Christ in order for that to be the primary driver of like growing them in fear of God. That pattern is biblical and it is not new. That's why the emphasis of what Christ has accomplished in our place, the emphasis and the heralding of that is right. That's why it seems counterintuitive to our human brains. It seems that if you wanted people to grow, you would just emphasize growth. Right? You would talk about growth, which we do, right? We do. But talking about growth doesn't drive growth the way that heralding Jesus Christ crushed for sinners stimulates growth. It just doesn't do it. This is why this biblical pattern is precisely why emphasizing the work of Christ and justification does not lead to apathetic, lawless living. The emphasis of the work of Christ and of justification and peace with God leads to sanctification and change in the Christian's life. It's a difference of perspective, right? It's a difference in emphasis and tone. Justification, assurance, and ultimately identity in Christ is the baseline of the Christian life and the Christian experience. It must be. So the MO of growth and change is first exhortation always. There are plenty of other ones underneath this, right? The first exhortation, if we want to grow in the faith, is behold Christ. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ and be changed. It's just like Paul writes in his second letter that we have in Scripture, his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, we behold his glory. And as we behold Christ's glory, we are transformed from one glory, or excuse me, one degree of glory to another. The glory of Christ changes us. Beholding his glory changes us. Singing of Jesus changes us. Hearing of Christ from the word changes us. We don't always perceive it, but it's happening, right? You don't see the grass grow, but you cut it every weekend kind of thing. We look to the work of Christ that only he has accomplished, and we rejoice that he has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. We consider the blessings of Christ that only he can deliver, that we could never earn. They're gifts, they're grace, peace with God. Could never do that, could never produce that. Christ has given it to you. Righteousness, 
Nobody in this room could ever do that. Nobody in this room could keep God's law in an absolute sense. Christ has given righteousness to you. Final salvation. You sit here today and you trust Christ. You sit here today justified. You will be sanctified and you will be finally saved. You won't decisively do that. Christ has done that and he's given it to you. The blessings of Christ. These things motivate change. They drive change. We consider the love of Christ. No one has ever loved like him. We consider his affection for his people. We consider the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and we pray along with the Apostle Paul that we would be strengthened in our inner being so that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the length and breadth and height and the depth of the love of Christ. And that love of Christ drives change. It motivates holiness. The last thing that a believer wants to do when we hear that message, when we behold Christ, the last thing that we want to do is go just like send the daylights out of everything. If that's the response, we need to have a different conversation. Christians, as we behold Jesus, are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are changed more and more into his likeness. That's why it's my main job in this church as the lead pastor, the main preacher. My main job is to hold Christ up and out for you every single Lord's Day so that you might behold him from the word and so that you might be changed by that over the course of weeks and months and years and decades. It will happen. Let's move now into our second portion of, of our time together this morning. So that was all under number one. That was kind of massive, maybe meandering in a way. Thank you for tracking with me. Number two, with all of that in view, everything that's already been said, John is now going to give a pastoral warning. With all of that in view, John is now going to give a pastoral warning to these dear people, people that he loves. We're going to look now at verses 15 through 17. Let's look at what he says. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. These are kind of my paraphrases of, of what he's saying. If you love the world, the Father's love is not in you. Verse 16. What is in the world, the literally lust of the flesh, the literally lust of the eyes, and the literally the arrogance of life. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the arrogance of life is not of God, but it's of the world. Verse 17. The world is passing away along with its lusts, its cravings, right? But whoever does the will of God abides, remains, lives forever. So let's unpack that some. What's in view? I think this is obvious. Whenever you start using that word love, we're talking about a matter of the heart. Like this goes way underneath 
outward and external conformity, right? This is a heart level issue. John tells his readers not to love the world, not to love the things of the world. So we can unpack that. Don't love the world. Well, what would that mean? It would mean a whole host of things, but here's a few thoughts. So with respect to the world, the fallen world in which you live, or the things in the fallen world in which we live, do not set your affection on them. We'll unpack this more. Do not find your identity in them. Do not hope in them. Do not trust in them. Do not tether your every happiness to them. Do not be enslaved to them. I think that's reasonable. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't set your affection on those things. Don't find your identity in them. Don't hope in them. Don't trust in them. Don't tether your happiness to them. And don't be enslaved to them. So he doesn't, let's just be clear, right? Like we need to be balanced and hold things in appropriate tension. Not just in the, this letter, but in the context of all of Scripture. He doesn't tell his readers to not be in the world. He doesn't tell his readers to not use things in the world. He doesn't tell his readers even not to enjoy things in the world. After all, God is the giver of all good gifts. Right? James 1.17. Every good gift, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. He's the Father of lights. Right? We read in the Gospels the words of Christ, that God is a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. We read all throughout scripture of the many wonderful things that God gives the whole world, not just to his covenant people, but he sends rain and sunshine and all these things on the just and the unjust alike. He gives people food. Read Psalm 104 this afternoon, this list of all kinds of wonderful stuff from, you know, he gives them grain, he gives them food, he gives them wine to gladden their hearts on a day when we're going to talk about Christian liberty, right? He gives good gifts. He's a good father. So again, we don't understand John to be saying, don't be in the world, don't use things in the world, don't enjoy your life. Christians above all people, because of the peace we have with God and the joy we have in Christ, should enjoy life more than anyone. It's a sadness that so often Christians walk around like a bunch of, you know, curmudgeons or something. And it's just like, oh, well, we're going to batten down the hatches. And then one day God's just going to burn this thing down. You know, I mean, that's just not the biblical witness, right? I could go. So nothing John is writing is contradicting those realities. So when John writes in verse 16 of the things that are in the world, and when he writes of the world, he's clearly writing about the world and its fallen condition. So to make these things plain. Lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes would be describing what I would call like the cravings of fallen humanity. Right? Like the craving, that's the best word that I know to use. Because that's what it is. I mean, it is a like the flesh, the fallen natural part of us. We crave things. We lust after them, sure, and we crave them. And sometimes, I mean, it is like the strongest pull imaginable right, to our flesh. 
the appetites and the cravings of the flesh consumed us in the fall. So when Adam and Eve fell, that happened to you and me. These cravings and these lusts and these desires and appetites of the flesh have just eaten us alive. Our wills are subject to those cravings. Our reason is subject to those cravings. Our hearts and our affections are subject to those cravings. When he writes of what's translated in your ESV, pride and possessions, I, I think based on just my perspective on this, in terms of what was written in the original, I think arrogance of life would be a maybe better translation, the arrogance of life. What's that signifying? It's signifying pride, certainly, or arrogant assumptions of self-sufficiency, prideful, arrogant assumptions of autonomy, even. I'll go my own way, thank you. It's the pride of life the arrogance of life. I can provide for myself. Thank you. I, I can make myself comfortable. I can make myself happy with stuff and with pleasure. I don't need God. That's the arrogance, the pride of life. That's what John's talking about. It's a heart level issue. These things, all of them, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, <coughs> excuse me, are obviously all a result of sin. Like, and by sin, I mean the condition of sin first. These things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they are in the fallen world, right? So John says they are in the world and they are of the world. They're not of God. And they are all in us naturally. So just continue to track with me. Like, what is John exposing He's exposing the fallen human condition. Words from Paul and Jesus both will be helpful to us here. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he writes this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, right? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is exactly what John is pointing out. It is this fallen state, this natural state for humanity, where we are following the course of the world. It's like debris floating on a river. Right? We're just carried along by it. The tide just kind of sweeps us away. We once lived in the passions, the cravings, the lusts of our flesh, and we carried out the desires of the body and the desires of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. This is what John is pointing to. Think of the words of Christ in Mark chapter 7, because John is pointing to a heart-level reality, right? Jesus says this, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. So it comes out of there. All these evil things come from within, Christ says, and they defile a person. 
So John is warning his readers, do not love the world. Don't love the things in the world. He's warning them about the course of this fallen world. Don't be swept away by the course of the world. Do not be swept away by the current and the tide of the world and the culture and all these kinds of things because it will sweep you away. He's warning his readers of the reality of wickedness and evil, the reality of Satan, the great tempter and accuser of the brethren even. He's warning his readers also quite clearly of the sinfulness of the flesh, the passions of the flesh that can absolutely rule a person's life. Watch out lest you be consumed and driven and ruled by the cravings of your flesh. That's what he says. So he reminds them and he even implores them that all of this, the world and the flesh and its cravings and the arrogance of fallen men, all of that is perishing. So don't be caught up in it. But in doing God's will, okay, in doing God's will, there is eternal life. Do you see that in verse 17? So here again, when John talks about doing the will of God, it needs to be said, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about real, sincere obedience. He's talking about a trajectory of a life that is characterized by obedience to God's commands. And so now, friends, I want to close briefly with just a, a pastoral word to CBC. So I know not everybody in this room is a member. It's okay. You've, you're here with us today. And I have affection for this assembly, this group of people, as as a brother in Christ, as a friend, as a pastor. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do in just closing down this, this time together from God's word, I want to try to communicate not only some of the content that John communicates, but I also want to try to emulate John's tone. I hope it will be helpful. This is not earth shattering or anything like that. I hope it will be helpful to us as we think about living the Christian life together here. So brothers and sisters, CBC, you have been purchased. You've been purchased by Christ. You've been redeemed by him. You've been forgiven for his sake. Know that. Own that. Live in that. You have been declared righteous. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what kind of baggage or what kind of sin you brought in here with you today. I brought it too. You have been declared righteous because of Christ and for Christ's sake. And so because of that, you have peace with God. It's yours. You didn't do it. You didn't produce it, but you have it. Peace with God. So if Christ has done all of that for you, and has given you all of that, look to him. Look to him always. In every conversation that we have in this church, it would not bother me at all. If every time we talked about life, and every time we talked about good things, and every time we talked about sin, if from the jump, every conversation, it started by, thank God for Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you know Christ. You know him. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. 
And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. I know you do. And you know the Father. You have right now fellowship with the Father and the Son. You have been adopted into the family of God. So I don't care what your name is today, first or last, you've been given a new name. You've been brought into the family. God is no longer your judge. He's your father. Brothers and sisters, through Christ and his spirit in you, you are strong. We talk a lot about struggle. We talk a lot about battling sin. We talk a lot even about the reality of our failure. And in Christ, you will overcome. In Christ, you will endure. You will make it to the end, not because you're strong in and of yourself. You'll make it to the end because Jesus will never fail you. He will keep you. Brothers and sisters, God's word lives in you. It does, in your mind and in your heart. God's word lives there. You know the truth. You know the truth, and the truth is in you. And so, brothers and sisters, Dear ones, beloved, don't love the world. Don't love the world. Be in the world. Live intentional, normal lives, but don't be of the world. Use things in the world. Just don't set your heart on them. Enjoy God's good gifts because there are, there are many. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is new every day. Pray for eyes to see it and enjoy the good gifts that God gives. But do not tether your every happiness to those gifts. Do not tether your every happiness to your circumstance. I know, I know in my own life and I know in your lives in a general way, and I know this is true of your lives in specific ways too. I know that the struggle is real. I know that life is often hard. But remember, like as you feel the pull of the things of this world, all of it is passing away. There's one thing that remains. There's one thing that will last forever. Cling to that. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, these these would be, I can't imagine that these would ever change in terms of my pastoral encouragements to you. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, trust Christ. At the end of the day, hold fast to Christ. Obey God's word and love one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that to trust in your son and to obey his commands and to love one another. We know that in those things is eternal life. And so we pray that you would give us the grace that we need so that we might do those things. As we sang today, the strength to follow your commands could never come from us. It must come from you and you alone. We pray that you would continue to move and work by your spirit in this service, even as we look to the Lord's table now. We pray that you would use this, 
this sacrament, this means that you have ordained, we pray that you would use it this morning to strengthen faith, to bolster and strengthen assurance. We pray that as we behold Christ in the elements of the bread and the juice, that our faith would be stirred, our affections would be stirred, and we pray that we would, even this morning, be changed from one degree of glory to another. Fill our hearts with joy, fill our hearts with gratitude, and make us humble before you, we pray. We ask for all of these things in Jesus' name, and we ask for them in his name, but we ask them also for his sake. Amen.